0: Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. This summer, I started hearing about a new book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Sam Albury called it a book that astonishes us with the sheer abundance and capacity of Christ's love for us. Well, I read the book, and it was as good as I had heard. So I got in touch with Dane, and he agreed to be on the Habit podcast. Until recently, Dane Ortland was Senior Vice President for Bible Publishing at Crossway Books and Bibles. These days, he's Senior Pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church near Chicago. We're releasing this episode the week of the 2020 presidential election in the United States. A great time to be reminded that the King of Kings is kind and gracious, gentle and lowly. Dane Ortland, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. You bet, glad to. Thank you, Jonathan. I love your book, Gentle and Lowly. Um, I love the theological insights. Um, I and, and I want to get into. We'll get into this in a minute. But but the way that you bridge from you know theological correctness to what then does that do to our affections, right? How does that How does that and uh, I, I mean by affections, I'm, you know, using it in Jonathan Edwards' sense, the things that we long for and desire. Um, and so, let's talk about that. I mean, you're, you're so, uh, of course, as I said, you're interested in theological correctness, mm-hmm. and yet you're looking to, to move beyond that, um, to um, really to I, I, you can tell me how you how you feel
1: about this this formulation, but to the way we feel about these truths is that is that fair to say? I have no problem talking about how we feel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I would say uh, you can't have less than theological care and precision and correctness, as you said, brother. But um, it's not enough. It's necessary uh-huh. but not sufficient. You need something more than that. You need what you were just alluding to, which is, that doctrine flowing out into uh, who we are as human beings, what we love, what Mm -hmm. gets us out of bed in the morning. Yes, in fact, what we feel. Um, I mean, there are plenty of religious PhDs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who had all their T's crossed and I's dotted, who Mm -hmm. hated the Lord Jesus and who reviled him and who held at arm's length, the uh, the distressed sinners of the day, and they were theologically correct, but mm-hmm. it, it was not doing something to them on the inside and causing love to explode and ignite. So uh, I just agree very much with what, what you just said.
0: Yeah, and so when you, I, I don't, I'm, how can I get to this question? I mean, as you were, how how did that? affect the way you wrote this book, the the mm. truth that you were really trying to move beyond mm-hmm. um, theological correctness to, to yeah. something else. How, how did that change what you thought
1: about your your writing work here? Yeah, well, th- this book is not, how would I say, it's, it's not centrally aimed at honing doctrinal precision. I wanted to be very doctrinally careful, mm-hmm. and in fact, I requested that um, that a very well-respected systematic theologian of Crossway's choice scrutinized the book. And he did that and I Mm -hmm. interact with him, it was really helpful. Um, So I wanted to be really careful not to lead God's people astray theologically. Uh, But it's a book on Christ's heart. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That is something that is theologically contoured and informed and shaped. But to talk about his heart you can't exhaust his heart with merely theological formula. It is about what pours out most naturally from him, what uh, what ignites within him most intuitively as he sees his people in distress and in anguish and in pain and even in their sin. So, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted, uh, I wanted to be careful theologically, but the goal was not theological care. The goal was that God's people would have their eyes opened a little more and be deepened in their awareness of who Jesus is in his deepest heart for them in their anguish, not just when they're doing well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and you have a lot to say about the aesthetic dimension of, of, you know, these theological truths or the aesthetic dimension of, of knowing Christ. Um, and you know, at one point you say, uh, "His his about Jesus. His desire to draw near to sinners and sufferers is not only doctrinally true,
1: but aesthetically attractive." Mm. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think we, at least in the world I've grown up in, Jonathan, um, have thought about that category of the aesthetic or beauty enough. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think in pockets of the evangelical world, like the rabbit room, we're recovering a love for this in the arts, in our writing craft. This is what you're giving your life to in the arts and music. Um, But why aren't we also talking about beauty when we're doing theology and when we're talking about God and writing about Jesus? Um, uh, For someone like Jonathan Edwards and for some of the Puritans, beauty was a meaningful category. Mm-hmm. That a meaningful lens through which they understood truth, and uh, I think we've we've gotten away from that in our generation largely. I mean, in seminary, I went to a great seminary, and I had wonderful classes, needed vital classes on the person of Christ and on the work of Christ, but never on the heart of Christ or the beauty of Christ. And uh, but that's what makes the heart sing. Uh, not by leaving theology behind or bracketing it out, but via, through sound theology, um, causing the beautiful heart of Jesus Christ to blossom and be seen in all its resplendent glory. So, that, that was what the Puritans have done for me, which mm-hmm. I wanted to do a little bit for uh, my readers.
0: Yeah. You, you say the whole reason we care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty. Are we yeah, exaggerating I mean, the whole
1: reason? Um, no, I, I stand by that statement, uh, understood right, uh, just as if you're going to look at something beautiful in nature through binoculars, mm-hmm. you want to get the focus just right so that you are seeing most clearly that beauty. That's one way to understand what doctrine is. It's, it's clarifying your binoculars. We need to be very, very theologically careful as we think about who Jesus is, his humanity, his deity, his miracles, his, uh, the virgin birth, his resurrection. What does that mean? Ascension, intercession, the atoning work of his death. Um, but we are not, how do we say we don't want to be precise about those doctrines merely for as an end in itself, for the sake of precision? That will ultimately deaden our people uh, that we are seeking to lead and write to. But we want to, through sound doctrine, um, uh, uh, see clearly so that that thing we're looking at, it we can see clearly, which is ultimately God and Christ. We want to see Him in a clearly contoured way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In a in an earlier episode of this podcast with Erwin Entz, um, you know, his book is The Beautiful Community, you know, unity, mm-hmm. diversity, and uh the church that should be, I think is the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his what when he was talking about um uh you know racial diversity and, and racial justice, you know, and the church's role in that, he chose to talk about it in terms of beauty, right? Get uh coming to terms with um uh, this again, you know, with regard to the, the Trinity specifically, the, the there's beauty in the unity and the in the diversity, mm-hmm. um, and I loved I love the way Irwin you know, reinvigorates um, these theological categories by reminding us that these are these are about beauty. I
1: love that. I mean, it's it is not only true and right that we. Um, live in harmony with one another, and love one another, and lay our lives down for one another, and stick our necks out for one another. It is also beautiful. So I think the title of Irwin's book is exactly right.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and the and I think this is so important to the writer's work. I mean, you know, to come to come to terms with with yeah. beauty and to to see ourselves as as uh, people who. I started to say purveyors of beauty. That's a weird way to put it. That's, that's, that's <laughs> not the word I'm looking for at all. Uh, and and not creators of beauty, but people who right. discover, you know, to, to slow down enough to see what's beautiful and say, Hey,
1: look at this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the, the reason the Heidelberg Catechism is my favorite of the creeds and confessions catechisms of the Reformation time is how things are formulated. Uh, When we were publishing, when I was the last 10 years working with Crossway with the ESV Bible, we wanted to publish the Bible in a way that its uh, typesetting and cover materials reflected the the value of what was inside. So in other words, it's not only important what we say in Mm -hmm. our writing, in our publishing, in our communicating, but how we say it. Mm -hmm. We can say, I mean, look at the Bible. God did not give us a list to tell us about who he is. He gave us a story, mm-hmm. a progressively unfolding true history. So, and, and the way in which the Bible comes to us, not only what it says, but how it says it is a matter of beauty. So, as we talk about, I mean, we are never going to surpass in the way we talk about Jesus, the actual beauty of who he is. We can try to come as close as we can to that ceiling, but we're never going to pass that threshold. But let's push it up as high as we can and uh-huh. speak as, as wondrously um, uh, as we can of the beauty of the heart of Christ. Yeah, great. So, I'm still on beauty here, and here's one of my favorite
0: insights from your book, Gentle and Lowly. Uh you say when we come to Christ, we are startled by the beauty of His welcoming heart. Mm. The surprise is itself what draws us in. Mm. And uh, as a storyteller, right, I love this this insight about that surprise. I mean,
1: the, we don't often think about how close surprise is to the heart of the gospel. Right. You, I was I was teaching a class on Colossians at a seminary a year and a half ago, and my dad and mom came and sat in on it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, this was, a, and, and I was uh, speaking about what motivates our obedience in the Christian life. And, uh, there, and I had mentioned the category of gratitude as a motivating category. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad piped in, and rightly, and for me, this is really lodged in my mind, rightly said, for me, it's not so much the category of gratitude that spurs on fresh wonder and obedience, but the category of surprise. Huh. And I wonder if one, one way to understand um, sanctification, the unfolding Christian life over many decades, how do we grow in Christ? How do we get traction? I wonder, Jonathan, if one major but neglected way to understand that is constantly being r- surprised afresh <laughs> mm-hmm. at what we're seeing in the scripture at what we're hearing preached on Sunday and what we're seeing in the gospel um, as we confess our sin, our sins being uh, kind of pressing refresh on this category being startled or surprised um, rather than uh, the gospel being surprising to us at conversion and then predictable the rest yeah. of our lives. Yeah.
0: Um, well, you know, a storyteller is always looking for that sweet spot where the end is surprising, not expected. And yet once it comes, it's like, well, that was, yes, you know, surprising, mm-hmm. but believable. Or, or it seems once you, once it happens, it seems inevitable. Right. I, I think, I think we respond to this kind of storytelling because it's, it's the gospel. I mean, that that's the shape of the gospel.
1: I, I should say. Exactly right. I mean, the very point of the gospel of grace is that we are moving through our life and viewing God looking down on us. And we are, we are deeply hardwired to expect him to come and correct, exhort, and judge us. Mm-hmm. And That is true at some level. Mm-hmm. But the deepest heart of the gospel, and actually the point and message of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is that God comes to us and, oh my goodness, he comes. And he doesn't bring what we expect him to bring. In fact, in our deepest shame, regret, and remorse, that's where he loves us the most. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's true, that is, we, we will we will die old men one day, God willing, Jonathan, and never have quite gotten used to that. And mm-hmm. I agree with you. When you say every piece of art, every story, every book, every communication, uh, it, when it is delightfully surprising us with good news of some kind, yeah. that is an echo and a glimmer. Uh, it's a whiff <laughs> of the deepest surprise at the heart of the universe, the gospel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We think we're living in a tragedy sometimes. Yes. And yes. It turns out we're living in a comedy.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, well, it's, uh, I, I, I just and, and to return to the, to the distinction between gratitude and surprise. Mm-hmm. Um you know, even gratitude there is a um an obligation like there, there's a yeah. even even the phrase ingrate like it's one of the worst things we can call somebody is is yeah. an ingrate um there there is a sense but I know there there shouldn't be a sense of obligation and gratitude um but but talk about surprise instead of gratitude as a way of sort of hewing to the to the unobligated side of gratitude rather yeah than,
1: I mean, if if it's my ten year old's birthday and he's expecting a couple birthday gifts and he gets kind of predictable level birthday gifts, he will be grateful but not surprised. So yep. he'll be thankful. He'll say thank you. He'll be kind of glad about it. But his heart will, his eyebrows will not have gone up. <laughs> um, gratitude in the Christian life, I think, can easily go stale. Um, But the way gratitude is heightened, deepened, kept fresh, is as we continue going through life, sinning and suffering and struggling and straggling, and wade ever more deeply into the endless love of God, which only surges forward all the more, the more we are (laughs) messing up, uh, that takes gratitude beyond itself into surprise, and I think keeps gratitude fresh. That's good stuff. And, um, and I've mentioned delight.
0: Um, that's that's a part of this, uh, a key part of all this.
1: Right? Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the key ingredient that separates surprise from gratitude. Gratitude might not be delighted. Oh, it yeah. might, because if I go into work and I work a 40-hour week and I get a paycheck, I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also owed it. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, whereas Romans four, four and five makes clear the gospel is not a paycheck; it's not what is owed. It is in the category of gift, and um, and uh, and the wonder of the endlessly unspeakably precious gift of the gospel uh, explodes merely gratitude into uh, ongoing surprise. I mean, if we have gone stale in our Christian life, maybe we've let the gospel and who God is, who Christ is, become safe and predictable to us. Uh, something we're grateful for, but it's kind of ho-hum, bland and ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's not where God wants to leave us. Yeah. Okay, so
0: as, as you know, this is a podcast about writing. Yeah. Um, and so I always try to circle, you know, steer things back to uh, to the top, you know, to, to writing-related topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so this this delight, surprise, um, what does this mean specifically for a writer? I mean, I, th- I think it's it's important for all of the, you know all of us, whether we write or, or do creative work or not. Um, but any thoughts on on how
1: this what this means for a writer? Wow. Uh, that's an elusive question, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my older brother, Eric, who who is who is a writer, a better writer than I am, uh, likes to say he can't sit down and make a book happen. The mm-hmm. book happens to him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's either going to come or not. And I think what he means is, uh, that's true to my experience. Uh, you can call it writer's block, call it whatever you want. I think musicians experience the same thing, so I don't have a mus- musical bone in my body. But I think it, you you... You you can't engineer or manipulate delight in your uh, writing enterprises. You can try, you can pray, you can open your laptop and stare at your Word document, but God has to do something. Um, and I think in, in the best writers that I like to read, um, I don't know what it is. God, ha- God gifts them, God gives them something. And they are clearly delighting. They're enjoying what they're talking about. Uh, when I read, I mean, I read uh, for my ordination exams, currently getting ordained, Louis Berkhoff, uh, systematic theology. I, don't, I, I can't detect any delight. Maybe he was and he wanted to like disguise it and hold it in. But that's writing theology, writing about the supremely delightful realities of the universe. And it's so bland. Yeah, and it's like come on, Louie, let's go. And whereas uh, other writers you read um, writing about God, and they are worshiping as they write, um, as they uh, more so with this book, gentle and lowly brother than anything else. I, I it, it just sort of poured out of me. Mm-hmm. I read for eight years and then sat down to write seven years, and it just came out because it had been getting stockpiled in my heart. Yeah. And uh, whereas. When I wrote my dissertation in grad school, it was painstaking research, one page at a day, mm-hmm. and honestly, not enjoyable. Um, no. So that's a couple of thoughts, anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, um, last night, my pastor was talking.
0: You talking about you know leadership. Leadership within the church. He says whatever it is that you want your the people you're leading to eat, eat that. <laughs> you know? Yes. And um, and so this this you know. It, but let me just say, in reading Gentle and Lowly, it was clear to me that you were delighting in this. It, it felt like you were delighting.
1: So, there's much, there's much to delight in when you read Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, and realize the one place Jesus ever talks about his heart. He doesn't say what we would have expected him to say, but he says mm-hmm. Gentle and Lowly. I am the most accessible and approachable person in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not expect that. Yeah, right. Um the and
0: I guess this is a I guess I should say spoiler alert because this is in the epilogue. But I love when you get around to that uh, the question of application.
1: Yeah.
0: You say the application is live here. Yeah. That's you awesome. know, and and uh, you talk about if somebody's from the you know way up north, the great you know snowy north, and they went a trip to to the beach. Yeah. They don't stand in the sunshine and say, how do I apply this to to my life?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I get annoyed, and maybe it's a reflection of my own wretchedness and sinfulness, but I get annoyed when I hear a preacher or writer say, now, how do we apply this to our lives? Mm -hmm. If you have to ask that question, this is maybe not absolutely true, so I'm going to make a little bit of an overstatement here, brother, but if you have to ask that question, then the doctrine that you are now the truth you're now trying to apply wasn't sufficiently rejoiced in Hmm. because the the doctrine itself i mean lewis c.s lewis said uh he, he when he sits down with a devotional book his heart doesn't just stays cold and dead but when he sits down and tries to work through a tough bit of theology with a pencil in his teeth that's when the heart sings unbidden and i think that that's that's it when you when you um Preach or write about truth before you ever start trying to apply it, but you're simply exulting in it, rejoicing in it, <laughs> laughing over it, celebrating it. Who needs to apply it? The yeah. human heart is going to be um, getting massaged into that reality already. It's almost like to say, Now, how do we apply this? You're causing the heart to close down again. That's a bit of an overstatement. Yeah. And I do believe in writing and preaching that at times we need to say now here are some specific avenues of application in the current racial unrest or the political yeah. climate with an upcoming election you know things like that we need to do that yeah. but don't so be so quick to go to the nitty-gritty applications that you are too hurried and facile and mm-hmm. surfacy and non-rejoicing in the truth you were already talking about
0: yeah Um, uh, speaking of thoughts that make your heart sing, Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, -hmm. tells a story about a, um, uh, a time she was, you know, reading, I guess, the Jesus Storybook Bible at a Sunday school, at, at a small children's Sunday school class. And the, um, and the teacher left in the middle of the story and she was there on her own with these kids and her story was over. She didn't know what to do. And she said, the kids were just eating it up. They were just loving it. And then she said, um, Okay, so um uh I don't I'm making up this example, but you know, that David and Glath, who are the giants in your life? And the kids just all droop because <laughs> you know? oh. we went from the delight of the story to Right. You know, and she right. said, I knew better. I knew not to to try to turn this into a you know a lesson or an application, but but we just we're conditioned to
1: it. We we, we almost can help it. Yeah, we are. I remember hearing Edmund Clowney uh, teach on preaching and he said, um Uh, to a room full of pastors, seminary, uh, seminarian pastors who were coming back for more training. He said, uh, tell the Sunday school teachers in your churches who are teaching the kids um, that it's better that they simply read the biblical story, whatever, David and Goliath or whatever, and then shut up than that they read it and try to then tack on some little pep talk at the end, a moralistic pep talk. Let the story carry its own weight if you don't know how to apply it in a Christ-centered way. <laughs>
0: well, the, uh, as, as I think you were, you know, in your epilogue when you're talking about, you know, yeah. application or to, 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 applicate or not to applicate, yeah. um, the, the invitation is to inhabit,
1: right? Yeah. Let's inhabit this instead of. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I love, I love that verb, Jonathan, because that means you are stepping wholesale into, So you're climbing inside a reality, as opposed to, here I am, and I'm going to keep my life going the way it was, and I'll try to dial in this little peripheral thing and attack that onto the outside, but instead I'm going to open the door and step through this wardrobe into the Narnia of who God in Christ most deeply is. Um, that's something that you can't really apply so much as you mm-hmm. simply, as you say, uh, inhabit
0: yeah yeah um speaking of inhabiting uh, the uh so you you're very strongly influenced by the puritans um in this in this particular book especially by uh uh thomas godwin and then is it richard sibbs yes yeah um and the Puritans don't have a reputation for for joy and um and in you know and delight yeah. uh, so um The floor is now open for you to to help uh, rehabilitate
1: the Puritans' reputation uh, among the listeners of The Habit. I sat in my ninth grade lit class in Libertyville High School, big public high school outside Chicago, and was given the same old crap about Mm -hmm. who the Puritans are, and it's just lamentable. Surely the devil must just be so gleeful (laughs) about the victory in his existence To get 21st century Christians to think that these men in 1600s England who knew how to take the human heart in one hand and the scripture in the other and build bridges between the two to help us get traction in our lives, to get us today to think that they were misanthropic, gloomy, Mm -hmm. um, depressed guys who walked around um, just lamenting the state of the world. How awful. And the only thing one needs to do to deconstruct that false picture is to crack open one of the Puritans. I mean, most of their collected words are simply sermons to merchants and farmers in their towns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. not doctrinal treatises undermining Arminianism. There are a few of those, but um, uh, just read them and you'll think, oh, okay, uh, this, this is enchanting. <laughs> but, you know, Richard Sibbs, the Bruised Reed, or Thomas Goodwin, the Heart of Christ, or uh, John Owen, Communion with God. I'm not mm. saying that it's easy, but right. it is actually far more accessible than doctoral students today writing dissertations about those guys. Now, <laughs> yeah. that stuff's inaccessible. Yeah,
0: right. That's a great
1: point. Yeah. But read. go to the original sources and read them and mm-hmm. go slowly, but you're mining for gold.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm sure you uh, have read Marilyn Robinson's essays about the Puritans and about um, Calvin. No, I have not. Oh you should. I mean she she's she's great on, on the subject, you know mm, um, of, you. of saying why don't we actually see what Calvin and the Puritans had to say instead of mm. Puritan as a as a pejorative term or a term of abuse? Um, oh wow thank And now I can't remember the names of the essays uh, uh, but there are a couple in her um, the death of Adam collection so okay. anyway um, all right now i always end these uh and every episode with the question who are the writers who make you want to write
1: oh wow. no i know
0: two who made you want to write this book you can talk about those yeah.
1: you want to yeah, yeah. Um, well um this may be a curveball but uh, one is my dad Okay. Growing up just watching, and my mom, watching them live a life of reading. I mean, my house was a library basically growing up. We had books mm-hmm. and only 30 minutes of video games on Saturday and Sunday each. And that was it, which was super annoying at the time. And I'm so glad for now. Yeah. So while we just grew up immersed in books. And so I I can't imagine a life without books. That sounds like a shell of an existence to me. Um and really the only consoling thought to me about all the great books I'm going to leave unread when I die mm-hmm. is that I'm going to be reading in the new earth forever. But to answer your question, uh, the very predictable C.S. Lewis, I mean, mm-hmm. the guy is inimitable. He, 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 he used effortless, uh, seemingly, English yeah. prose. He always chose the right word. You know, he spoke the clarity of Lewis as well. He spoke of uh, try to write. He said Like a shepherd driving his sheep down an old Scottish, a little country road. If there is an opening in the wall, the little stone wall going along the side of the road, if there is an opening, the sheep will wander through it right in such a way that you give your reader no opening to misunderstand what you're saying, but to keep them clearly on the road of understanding. But it is isn't only clear when you read Lewis, it is, uh, as we were saying earlier, beautiful. It's delightful. It's enchanting. I mean, The Great Divorce. I read that. I've probably read that book ten times, mm-hmm. and I get something new out of it every time uh, yeah. about our perverse resistance to joy. Um, and um, so he is one. Oh, I hey, to- but before you move on, uh, uh,
0: do you know where? I, I don't know this business about him. Uh, the,
1: the Scottish Shepherd image. Oh boy, you know. No, it, it's, okay. in one of the, it's probably in one of the God in the Dock essays or mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, Present Concerns. I bet it's in God in the Dock. I'd have to. Yeah. Um, you know, Doug Wilson did a book for Crossway uh, six, seven, eight years ago called Writers to Read. Uh-huh. That's a book to be aware of for your listeners in answering your question right now because this, it's Doug Wilson's answer to your question. Mm-hmm. And he has Lewis in there. He has Sayers in there. He has uh, P.G. Wodehouse in there. And he says why these people are worth reading. But for me, it's Lewis, uh, uh, Chesterton, um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, Richard Sibbs, Augustine. No one's surprising. Uh, but these these are the people who you read, and they are the the best of the best. They're the greats of the greats, and um, they they wed truth with beauty. They wed uh, clarity with profundity and um, they've just been very dear friends to me. Yeah. Yeah uh, our favorite writers do feel a lot like friends, don't they? That's right. and and if they're dead, then it's a one-way friendship for now. but <laughs> in heaven it's it will be a two-way friendship.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, you have been reading um, uh, the great divorce then because exactly right, there, yeah. right? That, <laughs> exactly uh, right. McDonald shows up as a little uh, Virgil figure. He does. He does.
1: Yeah, it's a profound book.
0: It's a great. That's. I think that might be my favorite C.S. Lewis book. The Mm. great Wars. I think. What do you love
1: about it, Jonathan?
0: Um, I, I mean, it it, it was just transformative in in my thinking about um, human will and um, and divine judgment um, and um, just just the idea that we. That we, I mean, the way you said, we have this this perverse resistance to joy and beauty. Yeah, Um, we think of ourselves as being pleasure seekers, but we're really not very good at seeking pleasure. No, we're pretty terrible at it. We are, yeah, (laughs) and uh, and short sighted, and I mean, you know, I I think a, a a good working definition of of folly is just you
1: don't you're not very good at being happy. No, we're not we're we're licking up sand, trying to quench our thirst. yeah and clutching on,
0: you know, we're like drowning people clutching onto a cinder block.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: That book um, sort of shaped my thinking on those on those issues more than more than any other book, really.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I love c s. Lewis too um, and um, and so you were right. he gets brought up a whole lot at the end of these episodes, but with good reason.
1: yeah, that's right.
0: All right. Well, Dane Ortland, thank you so much, and thanks for writing uh, *Gentleman Lowly*. It's it's a it's a, a lovely book, and it, it's
1: I, I hope just a million people read it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great to talk with you and and become friends with you, and, and God yeah. be with you. I hope we can talk again soon.
0: The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit jessraymusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.